I am vengeance. I am the night. I am also a podcast. I am a podcast. 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 Oh! It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about? If you have time, I can tell you that it is a podcast about Batman and a Batman podcast. Uh, what did you want me to say in this part? It's a show! Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> I am a Welcome to Batman the Animated Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Michael, and you're listening to an audio variety show for your ears based on the legendary 1990s cartoon, Batman the Animated Series. Today's sponsor, Renew You. Available anywhere you can steal products, get it force-fed to you by some corporate gangsters, and get turned into a goopy shape-shifting monster forever afterwards. Renew you. Why renew me when we can renew you? Now, if you didn't listen to yesterday's episode or the update, please do, because I'm currently running a week-long fundraiser to help organizations and charities that help fight systemic racial injustice here in the United States, and I'm using the podcast to do so. And after one day of this fundraiser, donations have started to roll in, which I deeply appreciate, but we can definitely use some more. So if you're on the fence about donating or just haven't yet, I've got some great news, actually. My guest on yesterday's episode, Mr. Jeff Trammell, I just want to say Mr. every time because that's his handle, and also he is a gentleman of a human being, has very generously pledged to match up to $200 for each organization in addition to the $200 I am pledging for each. So with Jeff and I both matching that amount, it means anything that you donate up to that threshold will be tripled automatically. Your donations are tripled right now when you donate via the show. And we've yet to hit that limit yet, so please consider chipping in. And again, no donation is too small. I want to destigmatize this idea that you have to donate a lot of money in order to make it worthwhile. Anything you can spare is great. Please do so if you can. And where can you do it? At www.bataspodcast.com donate, which I will link to again in the show notes, and it's available at BTAS Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Today's charity. The Equal Justice Initiative. The Equal Justice Initiative is committed to ending mass incarceration and excessive punishment in the United States, to challenging racial and economic injustice, and to protecting basic human rights for the most vulnerable people in American society. Often, I might personally add, those people are black Americans and other BIPOC. So please check them out, the Equal Justice Initiative, and get your donation tripled by donating through the podcast this week. Now, also, before we continue, a few show corrections from last episode. Specifically, uh, I pronounced some people's names wrong, and guess what? They reached out. Len Yuli, writer of the Static Shock episode The Big Leagues, which we talked about yesterday, reached out to share the correct pronunciation of his name, as well as the director of the episode, Dave Klistik. Sorry, guys. Thank you for listening. We love your work. All right, now it is finally time for... Today's episode, Feet of Clay. 
Matt Hagen's a movie star who's got it all, including a crippling addiction to a strange chemical formula developed by Roland Daggett's lab that helps him mold his face and keep the public unaware of what a horrible accident did to him. But in return for the stuff, Daggett has him play roles that aren't entirely legal. After Hagen calls it quits, he's given an overdose of it, becoming the deadly shapeshifter Clayface, hell-bent on getting revenge on Daggett once and for all. That is, if Batman doesn't stop him first. Original air date, September 8th, 1992. Story by Marv Wolfman and Michael Reeves. The teleplay for the first part is by Marv Wolfman, while the teleplay for part two is Michael Reeves. Part one, directed by Dick Seabast. Part two, directed by Kevin Altieri. Supervising composer for both is Shirley Walker, with music composed for part one by Jeff Atmagian. I might get another correction for that, as well as Carl Johnson. And music for the second part by Shirley Walker. Kevin Conroy plays Batman and Bruce Wayne, of course. Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. is Alfred Pennyworth. Ed Asner is Roland Daggett. Scott Valentine is Belle. Ed Begley Jr. is Germs. Mary Devon is Summer Gleason. Dick Gaudier, or Gaudier as Teddy, I'm sorry. Ron Perlman is Matt Hagen and Clayface. And Brock Peters as Lucius Fox. Today's guest, me. Harry Chaskin. Harry's been on the podcast many, many times before. You've heard him as the voice of the show and as a guest talking Two-Face in Episode 2, the Poison Ivy episode Chemistry later on, and even at a live show at San Francisco Comic-Con back in 2017. But beyond that, he's also my best bud and one of the most talented writers and directors I know in both stop motion and live action. Together, we also made a commercial for the DC Direct animated series action figures back in the day, which I believe you can still check out on their YouTube channel. And now we're here to talk about one of our all-time favorite episodes. So, as I almost always say, without further ado, let's get to that interview. Welcome to Batman the Animated Podcast, the fundraiser times. <laughs> this is the first <laughs> time I've titled things. Uh, I'm sitting with Harry Chaskin, friend of the show, friend of my life, uh, and probably guest who's been on the show the most times. Yeah, well, te- technically speaking, I think almost every episode, at least in... Uh in booming narrator voice form, but uh, I wasn't even thinking of you as the voice of the podcast. I was just thinking of you as the interview uh, person of the podcast. Yeah, I like uh, finding those weird loopholes, though. Uh, but yeah, I love love talking Batman. Happy to be here. If people haven't heard, uh, Harry was technically the first episode that I recorded, although he's the second one in the podcast. We talked about Two Face parts one and two. And then a little bit down the line, I believe we talked about chemistry with you and Dan. It was the episode where Batman gets married. I think. I don't know. I mean, there's so many there's so many episodes. You've been doing this show for, for so long. And we talk about Batman the Animated Series in our private daily lives uh, all the time. So it's hard to remember what's, uh, what's been on the podcast and uh, what's just par for the course conversationally. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is another episode, Feet of Clay, uh, the Clayface origin story that you and I not only love and have talked about since we were kids, but also have a bit akin to Harvey, no, (laughs) but it's less uh, an actual part of the show and more something that I misremembered or we both misremembered and turned into a bit over the years, which we'll get to. Yeah, I mean, that's... I feel like there's 
quite a few of those in in the history of our friendship that are bits based on poorly recollected Batman moments, like uh, the penguin snobby guy going, he flew away, which I don't think he ever says in, uh, what episode is that? Uh, Birds of a feather. Right. Yeah. I love also calling him the penguin snobby guy to a <laughs> podcast audience because I'm like, yes, I know who the penguin snobby guy is, but he is uh, like Veronica Vreeland's friend in that episode when they're sort of manipulating the penguin into, you know, thinking that they're friends with him. And when he kidnaps Veronica, this man, I think he like faints or he's just fainted or he's just being interrogated and he's like, he took her. But we always misremembered it as he flew away. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. I, I teed that up pretty poorly to anybody that is not inside our own brains. Harry, I started um, this off by saying I like you as an interview guy of the podcast. My words. It's, my uh, words. it's, it's wild times right now. It's uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, this was a, this was a fun one to rewatch. Like, yeah. Thinking about, Thinking about bits and also just, uh, yeah, there's so much good stuff in this episode. Um, yeah, I think it's been a favorite of mine. I think it's a favorite of people's uh, who, who love the series. And it was fun to revisit because I've watched it, you know, more than others over the years. I'll always kind of revisit my favorite early two-parters like this and Two-Face and, you know, the Mr. Freeze episodes and that kind of stuff because it's, you know one of the iconic tragic backstories and uh, of a Batman villain who got more depth because of this animated series. But there was stuff even on this rewatch that I think I just didn't ever pay attention to or forgot uh, that we'll get into that. I, I thought was like, Oh man, there's always something new, especially when watching these early episodes, which are just kind of jam packed with more detail and space than later episodes. Definitely. So what is it that you like about this episode? What is it that you like about Clayface in the animated series? I've always loved Clayface. And it's funny, like you said, there's so much in this episode that I didn't remember was there that I feel like in terms of creative storytelling and my own work and just other media that I seek out. This episode has like everything that that I love. It's got, I mean, yeah, it's got old Hollywood. It's got bitter, washed up celebrities. It's got body horror. It's got noir. It's you know, I mean, I guess there's a lot of a lot of Batman animated episodes that lean into that, but this has all of that plus Ron Perlman and Ed Bagley Jr. and uh, Ed Asner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Ed Asner always as Daggett is uh, is fantastic. But yeah, I think I think for me the combo of kind of sad monster body horror and washed up bitter actor uh, like those those two character tropes uh, I've I've always gravitated towards. And looking back on it. <laughs> I think this episode is a is a huge part of of why because it does it really well and uh, yeah it just just speaks to me. Yeah, I mean everything you said is is what I love about this episode, um, and I love that especially the early episodes you get uh, 
gangsters and corporate villains and and a lot of like the human side of crime in Gotham even though we're dealing with what is one of the more supernatural feeling uh villains in the series i mean it sure kicks off with a crazy one the fact that man bat is the first villain in this series <laughs> is, is kind of wild for a show that's like we're going to keep things grounded uh but otherwise i feel like clayface as a recurring villain is one of the more bonkers batman the animated series villains in its first run yeah but in this first two-parter revisiting that uh, revisiting it i was surprised how much the show takes its time. I had forgotten that he really doesn't even show up as Clayface until the second part. Like the whole first episode is, uh, is Gotham mob stuff, which the show did so well. And even, even the first scene with Lucius meeting fake Bruce Wayne in the abandoned warehouse. And they're talking about insider trading and like Daggett's corporate ambitions, uh, to you know, uh, do industrial espionage and kind of take over Wayne Corp. Like all of those machinations, ground it in a way that by the time Clayface actually does show up in his full form, you, you, at least I was just I was willing to to go with it and be like, yeah, this makes sense and it's emotionally grounded and grounded in more realistic plotting for a cartoon show. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that was some of the stuff that popped up this time for me that I hadn't really paid attention to as a kid or a teenager or a college student or maybe two years ago when I rewatched <laughs> this. Like the fact that they talk about insider trading mm -hmm. was like something I did not remember. I, I just kind of vaguely was like, yeah, Daggett's a shithead. And, you know, he's kind of uh, this face of like evil business taking advantage of people but I, I didn't even think about all that stuff and like what an insane thing and we talk about this a lot to have on a kid show mm -hmm. <laughs> within the first five minutes it's like we're going to an abandoned aerial tramway station <laughs> and there's going to be some talk of insider trading at three in the morning yeah yeah it's wild i had missed all of that until watching it this time around <laughs> also feel like and you know this might just be me but the violence in that first scene, the way it was animated and timed and with the sound effects, and maybe just because I love Lucius, like when that sign falls and hits him on the back of the neck, that was so brutal comparatively to a lot of the other stuff I've seen on the show. There was, there was just something, I mean, this episode overall with the body horror stuff is Clayface as well. There's just something very visceral about all of the animation and sound design in it that feels really painful and impactful yeah i agree i, I think I, I wrote down a note uh lucius takes tramway sign to the neck definitely paralyzed or dead <laughs> <laughs> i yeah. mean it hits him hard <laughs> yeah it really does i was happy to see he was okay by by the end of you were worried episode. legitimately that they were going to kill off lucius fox in this early episode <laughs> yeah you know it uh, it's not like i've seen all of these a million times willing to suspend that disbelief i mean i didn't remember that it took place in a tramway station and and i'll be honest this is the weirdest kind of nerd but i think i am a like odd transportation nerd <laughs> the way the older i've gotten i'm like well i like funiculars and you're i like tramways you're right uh, you're so the fact that there was like a tra like an abandoned tramway and we see that in the background of the set i was like how did i never notice this yeah it's uh 
You're a, you're a big fan of the funicula, I know, but uh... <laughs> what an insane thing uh, to be a fan of. But I really do get excited if I'm in a city and they have a funicular. Ninety nine percent chance I'm gonna ride it, even if it's out of my way. Oh hell yeah! But yeah, the tram, the abandoned tram is interesting. I feel like all of that just goes to painting the background uh, of Gotham as a city. I, I don't know. I see the tramway. I think about like the the monorail at Disneyland and Epcot and how everything in Gotham is either decrepit or abandoned and like just a, an example of the ambition that this city once had to be this futuristic, amazing place and how it's all just gone to shit. It's a cool little detail. Yeah. There's so much world building in these early episodes. I mean, that first shot also let's talk about it because it doesn't even, we don't get that kind of stuff in later episodes and part of it is because it's a two-parter but it starts out on the city kind of tilts down we see that it's the tramway station then pushes in goes down low to the ground we see a close-up of a rat that scurries by some feet tilt back up and see that it's bruce wayne standing there kind of incognito and the amount of time it takes to get there is is just not time you have in other cartoons and uh, or even other Batman episodes, especially moving forward into like the redesigned new Batman adventure stuff. Yeah, the early seasons of the show especially were so cinematic and willing to live in those silences. And in this case, I think it was such, I think it was a, a, an impactful and important choice because, you know, the hook of the episode or the first thing you see is, oh, it's Bruce Wayne, but he's not acting like Bruce Wayne. He's like untrustworthy Bruce Wayne. So the time they take to set up the space as being run down and seedy and there's rats running around, like it really sells the idea of how weird it is and how legit Lucius's reaction is when he sees Bruce at 3 a.m. like walking through this wooden busted up fence uh, to do some some shady dealings. I love the little animation touch after they walk through of the one wooden slat uh, falling behind them. Just like another example of an extra little beat or moment that adds atmosphere and world building to the show without necessarily directly advancing anything narratively. Yeah, I, and I think that tracks across the visuals as well as the story. I mean, just giving the gangsters more personality like germs and bell you know actually being more than a thug who's going to get knocked out I, I feel like the show had something to prove at this point and mm -hmm. everybody was like we need to show you what this is before it becomes this phenomenon and and i know that the writing was kind of hit or miss in the earlier seasons and i, I think some of the dialogue in here is a little goofier or more played up although there's something i like about uh how noirish it feels, uh, but it feels like visually it's saying so much, and and the direction is so good too. Yeah, both of the henchmen in this episode, which I had forgotten the details of, they sort of feel like Batman-specific versions of Dick Tracy villains, Germs and Bell, with with his uh, and of course rather than Dick Tracy villains that are always outwardly grotesque, these guys have idiosyncrasies that are. Uh, psychological and you know specific to them as characters with germs and his hypochondria and bell always obsessively listening to the to the police radio i thought those both of those were really cool um 
yeah, definitely some of the dialogue uh, in in this episode uh, felt a little different. I, I I love when they lean into the into the noir stuff. The only thing that really bothered me watching it was uh, I feel like they saddled poor uh, what's his name uh, Matt Hagen slash Clayface's uh, assistant. <laughs> Teddy, st- yeah, I feel like they saddled Teddy with almost every piece of expository heavy lifting. <laughs> you like... remember when you got in that accident, but then things were good, <laughs> Matt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was. Uh, uh... Well, I mean, just going back to you talking about Dick Tracy villains. Um, I mean, Hagen himself looks like a Dick Tracy villain when he doesn't have the renew you on his face in the beginning. Like he is basically, he could be any Dick Tracy villain. Yeah, you got prune face, clay face, flat face, uh, bat face, bat face, one face, two face, red face, blue face. <laughs> yeah, all legitimate Dick Tracy villains. Uh, I actually did just rewatch the Warren Beatty uh, Dick Tracy movie, which is uh, weirdly feels like a, a nice weird spiritual companion to this show. I mean, it also felt like it was influenced by Tim Burton's Batman and felt like they wanted to capitalize on that and kind of failed in a lot of ways, but visually uh, the matte painting backdrop, some of like the, the design of that world was really cool. And, and even in, in this episode, I feel like some of it is just tropey, but even in the first fight, there's that like brief gear fight where like Batman is fighting a guy on some turning gears in the tramway. And I'm like, well, that's the end of Dick Tracy, the movie. Uh, and I mean, it's also a trope of like, you know, a lot of kind of gangster comics, but I, I was like, I wonder how much of that stuff sort of was an influence. Cause this was only a couple years later. Yeah. I don't know. I've been wanting to, to revisit that one. I was actually watching, uh, some toy commercials from the Dick Tracy movie on YouTube last night and uh, remembering that. And I know that that was the Dick Tracy was considered a box office failure specifically because the studios were looking at the performance of 89 Batman and expecting Dick Tracy to do the exact same thing. And yeah, it's like, no, it's Batman is uh, Batman has continued to be in print and stay relevant for six decades dick tracy everybody forgot about for a minute but uh yeah i mean it was the movie was i'd say overall kind of boring to watch it was it was a pretty it felt like a failure from a narrative and character standpoint like i think what batman did even though it was like you know much less realistic and more heightened uh, than like, say the Batman stories you might get from Nolan. I feel like Burton's Batman did have an emotional core to it, even if it was kind of simplistic. Whereas Dick Tracy, I dare you to stay interested for more than 10 (laughs) minutes in a character. Like it truly is so hard to watch uh, because there's just so much plot and so much boring shit, Uh, but it's visually Uh, very interesting even when it fails it's interesting but i think there's a lot of cool visual success there but uh, i mean also who's going to reboot dick tracy now like uh we certainly don't need a heroic cops movie yeah right (laughs) uh it's it's i I don't know how that would ever happen and if it does uh i think it'd have to be vastly reimagined yeah like dick tracy acting like a dick yeah 
<laughs> yeah, that's what people want to see. <laughs> yep, it's going to be a smash, a smash success. But this ain't Dick Tracy the podcast. This is Batman the animated podcast. Yeah, going going back to that gear fight. Something I was thinking about watching that and thinking about this episode relative to some of the later entries in the series. <laughs> uh, let me know what you think. I felt like compared to how they would later portray Batman kind of taking out henchmen in most cases. Like, the threat to Batman and the way this scene was staged felt a lot higher to me. And I don't know if it's because these two henchmen were more specific and it was an earlier episode, but it was like watching it, oh shit, like Batman is inches away from getting his head crushed by a giant gear, I feel like. Later, they played up more of the Batman lurking in the shadows and kind of invisibly taking out these these nameless mm-hmm. goons. And yeah, again, like that whole first fight felt very visceral and it felt like the people that he was fighting with uh, embodied a more a more legitimate threat than like a lot of the sort of initial initial fight. Uh, fight sequences uh, as like a first story beat that I've seen in the in other episodes of the show. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I feel like it's probably a combination of, of a lot of things. Part of it is we haven't seen him a lot, so everything kind of has to be exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas after you're 30, 40 episodes in, 60 episodes in, it's like, all right, well, we've seen a lot of henchman fights. Um, it also feels like they're probably leaning into the cool Batman trope of mm-hmm. like, oh, throwing up a fist and knocking somebody out without looking felt like it was more fun and probably less brutal. I bet they got notes to tone down some of the violence as they got further and further along. The more Robins forced to be in things because they wanted a kid entry point. The You know, I, I just wonder where all, if some of it was notes, some of it was just, again, trying to prove themselves or just try things out that maybe they were like we don't need a gear set piece in the middle of another set piece in the first 10 minutes when we're gonna have so many places to go in this two-parter yeah or even just to see batman grab a henchman's rifle and hit him across the face with it wielding it like a bat it's uh it's pretty wild yeah well, why don't we let's let's yeah let's get going. past the first the first scene. <laughs> no, I mean I'm happy yeah. to talk about it. I was just like, man, we we've only done the first scene. So next we sort of see um, this movie theater uh, that Hagen, as Bruce Wayne, I believe, walks by. Uh, so it turns out it's not a location. I was like, oh, this must be his hideout. It's just a movie theater that has a poster for Gangbusters, yeah. the movie that he's in, starring Matt Hagen uh, out front, and then we just kind of cut to imperial pictures which feels like kind of a stand-in for paramount and warner brothers sort of mashed up based on the architecture (coughs) yeah yeah definitely has that uh that deco that deco gate and uh yeah i got i got nothing to say about that (laughs) yeah well we move into his trailer and we we meet matt hagan we kind of meet him we meet teddy his stand-in who, uh, just for people who haven't listened to this podcast religiously since it was released in 2015, uh, Alan Burnett on the show, uh, who is head writer or story editor, I, I should know, but uh, he, he was you know heavily involved in the scripting of the series um, and overseeing that sort of stuff. 
said that essentially this relationship between Hagen and Teddy was was coded as they are lovers, um, which I think is interesting in hindsight, at least. Yeah, yeah, definitely feels like there's that that subtext there, both in in the dialogue and also just uh, the way the scenes are staged. <laughs> And it makes you feel, makes you feel, I know I, I ragged on uh, uh, on Teddy earlier for having all the exposition, but you do feel bad for the guy. You know, they portray him as somebody who is devoted to and, and genuinely seems to love and, and care about Hagen. And over the course of the, the two episodes, he just gets, he gets the shit end of the stick. Yeah, it's an abusive relationship. Uh, yeah. I, I feel like there's a weird fine line that's walked between the sympathy you have for one of these rogues and also remembering, hey, they're bad guys. And I feel like as a kid, I really did lock into Hagen's uh, plight, you know, and, and felt bad for him. But, you know, the older I've gotten, <laughs> the more I watch it, I'm like, he is an asshole from moment one. And maybe as a kid, you're also identifying with just his kind of unbridled anger and, and an inability to express himself in a, in a more emotionally intelligent way. And I feel like that is part of being the, you know, whatever, six to ten age range that uh, maybe you're experiencing those feelings. So that's something that you can connect to and not judge as much. Yeah, definitely. I think, too, what stood out for me this time, in addition to the implied relationship between them, is from that first scene, like the the heavy addiction mapping. Like, oh, yeah. I think that that, especially in that first scene, is portrayed so well and just it's kind of like instant instant pathos, you know, it's... <laughs> You feel for Teddy as the guy that's simultaneously responsible for and enabling and trying to help Hagen. And you just, you see that dynamic between them. And, uh, you know, they're, they're talking about face cream. But if, if you're looking at, uh, at any kind of other story, you know, pick, pick what you want to put in place of that. And, uh, and it rings true. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, I, one of the things I wish was that, you know, the show did such a good job of bringing back weird minor characters. So like, you know, when we see Kirk Langstrom, the man mm -hmm. bat again, uh, the second episode, I think terror in the sky is the one where he returns, but it turns out it's Francine Langstrom and she is the she bat. Uh, but they bring back Francine. They bring back these weird minor characters that, you know, Carl Rossum, the robot guy from the Hardak episode, shows up again in Deep Freeze. Why didn't we see Teddy again? And, and you know, obviously different writers care about different things, and maybe they were like, yeah, we don't need him. But it almost felt like if this character was intended to be coded as gay initially, it's like a weird straight washing to make his second episode uh, about him having a relationship with this woman. But I also wonder if it was more about him using her I don't know if you remember the second Clayface episode where basically he, the scientist is helping him uh, sort of form into a, a new body, a container shell, and he's having to right, the shape looks like, like an Oscar. An Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I haven't watched that for a little bit, so maybe I forget if it's a romantic relationship, but I feel like it's played that way. And it's, I'm like, oh, yeah, Teddy was 
one of the the only character in Hagen's life that like we really uh, cared about from his origin. Why don't we see that guy again, even if it's resentful of Hagen and you know not associated with him when Batman's investigating? Yeah, it would have been cool to bring him back. I even would have loved to see him just on another episode that deals with show business. Like I feel like he could have showed up in the Gray Ghost or oh uh, yeah. Yeah, the uh, fun fun character. Yeah, I mean th- this episode, this two-parter has so many different just Gotham citizen style characters. We've got Teddy, we've got Daggett, we've got these two goons. We have Summer Gleason, uh, you know, in a in a small part. We we've visit a, so many different locations. Yeah, we even get a glimpse of uh, Bruce Wayne's lawyer, who looked like Brian Doyle Murray to me. But, uh... <laughs> Famously, uh, was there for the recording session, but did not say any lines. Uh, they just needed him there so they could imagine what the lawyer <laughs> would have looked like if he were standing there in the background. And you know, Brian Doyle Murray, he got the full paycheck that day. Yeah, he just sat there with his arms crossed, shaking his head disdainfully anytime uh, someone said something that might be incriminating. But uh, <laughs> yeah, a lot of, lot oh, of and set- Lucius Fox. Oh yeah, yeah, and Lucius, and so many set pieces. You have the, the uh, the, the train, the abandoned, uh, the abandoned tramway. train state tramway. Thank you. In the beginning, you've got. Daggett's chemical factory. You've got the hospital smothering with germs. There's just... TV studio set. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so much stuff. One of the things, going back to that initial scene where we meet Hagen and Teddy, uh, well, there are two things. One thing stood out to me as very funny is the fact that Hagen's newspaper clippings on his mirror are all about his accident. <laughs> 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 like, he seems like a dude who... It feels like, uh, like, hey, we got to sneak in some exposition. Let's just have this hanging up. But it, it it seems so wild that he wouldn't have clippings of like positive reviews of his movies, which seems more in line with the character. It's a guy who's wants to be reminded that he had the accident when he's already looking in the mirror. Yeah, it'd be like Bruce Wayne having the giant painting above the mantle just be the overhead shot of his parents dead in the alley instead of... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, he super glued those uh, broken pearls onto the ground. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that that was like, huh, okay. Um, Yeah, but I mean, if I was gonna, if I was gonna read into that in a different way, I'd say you could justify that character-wise as him being somebody who has never been able to let that go and and uses it to fuel his continued bitterness. I mean, Teddy even points out to him like, Hey, you had your best roles. Like after the accident, I feel like, you know, so many Batman characters have a tragedy as a defining marker in their lives and their identity. And the fact that he's keying into that as the turning point and not necessarily the growth afterwards, the growth afterwards, and then the decline afterwards where he did who knows how many bad things for Daggett and then got a bunch of a bunch of face goop dumped down his throat. It's uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's what what it's like to be in Gotham. You're either Batman or a rogue and you're for sure stuck in that one traumatic place mm-hmm. and not moving on. Um, and, you know, I think that's that's a that's a powerful thing that anybody can relate to you can sort of map over any trauma big or small definitely um 
the good thing that I liked in that scene, uh, or not that I didn't like those newspaper clippings, they just pinged me for the first time, uh, was when Teddy walks in, uh, the way that they they have the light behind him when he opens the door, it's it's a very like live actiony looking uh, effect of it looks like things are blown out behind them. And they do some really cool effects that, that feel like grounded live action choices, but emulated in animation in this episode that I'm like, <laughs> that seems so much harder to achieve. Like that glow really was impressive to me. And it's just a, a couple small shots. So again, it feels like they're, they're really not skimping when, when they were making these early episodes. Yeah. The animation all around in, in, in this two parter is fantastic. I noticed they did a similar glow on the headlights of the car in the first scene, and I don't know if I don't know if the show all, always did that. And especially when you think about how two D animation was produced at the time, you know, to do a glow effect like that, you were doing a multiple exposure process where you had your car painted on the cell, and then you'd have essentially a negative mat, which was you know, a white dot on black paper or vice versa, animated to match that you do as a second exposure and then optically print it and backlight it. Like the number of steps to create an effect like that was so much more involved and had so many more things that could go wrong compared to now where you could do it as a, as a digital filter. So the fact that the fact that they were taking the time to do that makes it even more impressive to me. Yeah, if people are listening and haven't heard uh, any of the Dan Reba episodes, I believe he talks a lot about how they achieve certain effects in certain episodes. Because while he was a director for the series, he also, you know, w- would create some of the effects. And I think in in one of the Clock King episodes, I think Time Out of Joint, the second one, there's like a very cool kind of time travel-y looking effect. And he talks about the process for, for making that. And I feel like that was stuff that I, I never even thought about. I was like, this looks cool. But even hearing you describe what goes into that, I don't really fully understand it. But it's <laughs> it feels like there are so many, so many steps just to get to something that people aren't supposed to notice necessarily uh it's just supposed to look really well executed um or just normal you know and and i feel like they do such a good job yeah there was a there was a moment in this episode with a piece of effects animation i actually had to had to back it up and watch the scene over again because i missed the dialogue i was looking at the uh the effect when daggett is walking on the catwalk uh in ace the green goo in the bottom yeah, and it has this holographic kind of sparkly iridescent effect, and I actually don't know how they achieve that. I've seen that a few other times in different uh, different animated shows, and uh, yeah, if anyone knows how that's done, I would love to. I would love to know. I'm curious. Yeah, yeah it felt like it. It almost had this quality of like uh, you were seeing, like you know, when you would project stuff. I don't know if you've used a projector and then kind of like projected like kind of like a liquid tray and mm-hmm. it, it almost looks like a psychedelic sort of bubbling 60s uh sort of effect uh, and i've seen that manually done uh and i it reminded me of that it felt like an old school kind of projection <laughs> but yeah. used to an effect here definitely i've done similar things in stop motion with aluminum foil but uh really cool cool stuff uh technically in this episode yeah 
Uh, well, moving on from from inside of Daggett's trailer, uh, or not Daggett, Hagen's trailer, uh, we get to Daggett, uh, and we get an introduction to him. I don't know if this is the first time we've seen him or if he showed up earlier in the series, but he's. Uh, we also set up Bell and Germs. Uh, Bell's always wearing the headphones. Germs is using his, you know, uh, tissue to open doors and push things open. And I feel like the fact that they took the time to introduce them with these tropes was so much fun because the payoffs were always way more satisfying, even an episode later. Yeah, I had I had remembered Germs as a character and having that idiosyncrasy. I had completely forgotten. And I guess we'll we'll get there. But what happens to him in the in the second part of the episode and how satisfying that is. Yep. But we get to basically Daggett proclaiming he's a villain to these guys, you know, laying it out for the kids, for the audience, uh, and is basically saying, Hagen's outlived his usefulness. Uh, so pretty good Daggett. Hey, you know, if people are looking for a role in Daggett uh, in the year 2020, I'm here. <laughs> and if anybody's <laughs> looking for a Dick Tracy, I pity you. Ah, um. <laughs> uh, yes. So we see Hagen uh, breaks in to Daggett's chemical place. Um, and there's a... We actually, I think he passes by what looks like the same sleeping guard as, as we see in the pilot of Batman the Animated Series, the one who gets scared by the man bat. I thought he looked familiar. I was wondering about that. I mean, I so. get it. Yeah, you got that guard design. It's for one shot. <laughs> of course you're going to reuse it. Um, but I think we get a lot of really cool shots of Hagen breaking in. There's some really cool POV shots. It's a lot of – it's almost entirely in shadow. I don't think we see D uh, Hagen – excuse me. Maybe I said Daggett uh, – breaking in in full light until he's exposed by germs and bell and turns around is like, it's me, Bruce, Bruce Wayne. Wayne. <laughs> yeah. That whole, that whole break in sequence was, uh, was really cinematic. There was one shot I really liked. Uh, I think it was at the beginning of this scene. They've got a bunch of pipes as like a foreground element and you see him go behind them. And I was just thinking about, like all the compositions and the and the framing that they use to, you know that that's a shot that essentially is a is a bridge shot. You could have cut between the shot that preceded it and the shot of him going uh, into the lab directly without any of that connective tissue, and it's just you know extra extra material that helps build suspense and make it feel mysterious and uh, yeah, well done. It's moody, yeah. Uh, and I, I do love that when he's like, I'm Bruce Wayne, I seem to be lost or like, you know, what, whatever he says, <laughs> uh, I love that. They're like, yeah, no, you're not. <laughs> uh, they're, they're not, I think they're like, we're not idiots. <laughs> you're yeah. not Bruce Wayne. Obviously. <laughs> Why would he be here in the middle of the night <laughs> trying to steal some of this thing that only you, Matt Hagen wants? I was thinking that too. And there's a bit right after that, when they start beating up. Hagen as Bruce Wayne and one of the effort noises that that happens when he gets punched is clearly Kevin Conroy and I'm sitting there thinking so is Hagen just like a really committed actor that he's going to stay in character as Bruce Wayne while he's getting the crap beaten out of him or uh, or was that it was just yeah. him he, he's he's committed uh, he's so committed that he, he maybe is like uh, he's method and is in the mindset of Bruce Wayne. <laughs> mm. 
I do think it's like, you know, the justification for him being able to fake voices so well is like, he's just a really good actor, <laughs> uh, which is like, yeah, I get it. Uh, there's only so much you can uh, spend time on in these episodes, but yeah. uh, he's a master impressionist. <laughs> and thank goodness he and Bruce Wayne have the same haircut and color hair because... Uh... Otherwise, he never would have pulled that one off. Yeah, shape, build. Um, yeah. And then they have uh, one of the images in this episode that has stuck with me forever as a kid mm. uh, until now, which is Hagen being force-fed in silhouette uh, an overdose of Renew You. And it's truly a viscerally upsetting thing to watch. Yeah, it's really... It's really horrifying, the fact that they use the silhouette and imply what's happening. I'm sure a combination of, of S&P and just, and you know, what the show was and when it was on. But I feel like it's one of those cases, like not showing the monster, where it's so much more viscerally impactful to see it in silhouette and to hear the glug, glug, glug sound effect. It's... Uh, I remember seeing that scene as a kid, and when I think of that, when I think of this episode now, uh, even before revisiting it, uh, that's one of the things that sticks with me. Uh, and I don't know about you, but the other, the other image that immediately follows that that I find almost equally upsetting is when he's slumped. <laughs> they carry him to the car, and you see a glimpse of his head, and there's sort of these fleshy-looking sprigs coming out of it that kind of look like hair. And then it tilts down and you see his hand just melting a little bit. And again, you never see it clearly. I feel like while not in silhouette, that's still by not seeing his face and by the fact that it's dark, it's implying something that in my mind as, a, as an eight-year-old and now is so much more horrific than if they had showed you outright what the, uh, what the result of uh, dumping all that goop down his throat was. Yes. Yeah. I agree. I think that that stood out to me. I think of the glug, 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 perhaps first, but rewatching it, I was so excited. I was like, oh, yeah, there's the drippy hand coming up. Uh, I think this was what got me into horror more. Uh, I've talked about it a lot on the podcast, and you certainly know it since <laughs> we, we know each other uh, deeply. But I, I was very afraid of watching horror movies. I really was kind of... Uh, afraid to dip my toe in. And I think Batman was one of the things that got me interested and excited about it. I loved Halloween, uh, just the holiday and, and kind of like spooky stuff. But seeing these kinds of images, this kind of body horror was, was some of my earliest introduction to it. And I, I loved these episodes because of it. I, I loved how that, that shot of like the sprigs of hair or whatever it is, it's so brief, uh, but it, it really is resonant. I mean, even later when we see more of the Clayface transformations, when he's freaking out at the end, there are some versions of him that look like a giant baby with like, he just looks more, it looks painful to be in the state that he's in. And I think that's also something we kind of lost in future Clayface episodes that uh, I kind of missed the the body horror, the, the pain of his transformations. It feels very Cronenberg-y, very the fly. Yeah, definitely. Especially the part in the jumping ahead again, but in the second episode when he gets the giant clay face hand growing out of his chest. That's such a Cronenberg-esque image. It looks 
biological and also kind of insectoid and it's just it's weird yes i i i I can't imagine writing like writing that or reading that in the script and figuring out how to interpret that visually but uh i think the other the other component for me at least in terms of selling clayface's pain uh is just ron perlman's work as a voice actor in these episodes it uh there's something very there's something very visceral and and immediate and painful about it uh both when he's matt hagan and when he's clayface that uh i feel like really helps sell the physical pain that he's going through yeah he does a lot with a little um and he he you know i forget how how short all of the Hagen stuff is compared to like a movie, but I think of him as fully fleshed out like a filmic character. Um, mm-hmm. And Ron Perlman's one of those actors who I feel like sometimes you get actors who are bigger name film celebs who are great actors on screen and they don't know how to transition to voiceover. And one of the coolest things about Ron Perlman to me is that he gets voiceover. He knows how to bring the same sort of energy and pathos to characters. And I guess that's why he works really well under makeup, like as Hellboy or whatever. And one of the many characters where they're like, Hey, we're going to pile you in makeup for a long time. And then you have to do your best. Uh, he, he, he can communicate a lot with his, with his voice and it's it's really good yeah i feel like he's i was gonna say with all the all the creatures and heavily made up characters he's played he's used to conveying a lot of emotion and honesty through layers of stuff whether it's makeup or whether it's being unseen behind a microphone and uh that's pretty cool well moving on from you know one of the most iconic scenes for us in part one uh we finally catch up with batman who's in who's in (laughs) at the bat computer uh and in in full suit in full suit uh gotta be uncomfortable (laughs) definitely you know why why man um because you're always hiding uh, but Alfred's like, hey, uh, by the way, you should probably, I've had to turn away the police multiple times and Batman doesn't even know. And he's like, what do you mean? What's going on? <laughs> so the police have been looking for Batman or Bruce Wayne uh, because of Lucius Fox being put in the hospital. And uh, it's taken what feels like days for him to realize that he's a wanted man and that his, and that one his, of his close best friend friends and is injured. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oops, what's up? Uh, well, I gotta look into this. Except he does know because he was there in the first scene beating up the the henchmen that were attacking Lucius. Yeah, I'm not sure if he knew that Bruce was supposedly the one behind it because I feel like he shows up, Hagen gets away, he beats up these right. thugs, and then at the end, I think it's the cops that hear... Bruce Wayne did this to me or something. Um, So, you know, it still just feels like narratively a little weird that we hadn't checked in with Batman, but I'm also fine with it because I enjoyed all the Hagen and Daggett stuff. Yeah. He also, I think it's in this scene has one of my favorite uh, lazy, lazy mystery solving Batman lines. It's like akin to, akin to the, Sideshow, is it Sideshow? It's akin to the Killer Croc episode where 
Batman goes to the zoo as Bruce Wayne is looking at the crocodile exhibit and goes, oh, of vendetta. course. Thank you. Yeah. When he's uh, here on the bat computer, punching in different uh, facial combinations to create a, a virtual police sketch. And he says something like, I know my fist has collided with that jaw before. Like I, I, I like the conceit that Batman knows his, his criminals so well. He can, he can tell through a glove. Yeah. It's such a pulpy line that you wouldn't hear later in the series, but uh, it's a real treat. It feels so over the top and silly, but uh, uh, it, it, I, I love it. Uh, <laughs> well, then we get to full-on Batman investigation and torture mode, which is he. Uh, we, we cut to Fat Polly's pool hall. Uh, we see Belle, the guy with the headphones who's always listening to the police radio, walk out, um, and he hears basically Batman fakes a police radio call about bell wanting to be apprehended and then he'll probably be at his place which is like some smart batmaning you know i feel like he, he he's not always uh portrayed with that level of setup <laughs> yeah and who knew that his uh police uh vocoder thing uh had a annie potts filter on it sounds just <laughs> like uh janine in ghostbusters i wonder who did voice that character yeah, I don't know. Probably whoever played up. Summer Gleason. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're like, we we get you for three free voices, so you're gonna be <laughs> this character. Uh, finally, I can be police, police fake, fake police transmitter. The uh, dream I was born to play. Uh, the dream, the role I was born to play. Jesus Christ. Uh, so then we get this bat plane chase, which I love about. The thing I love about early Batplane stuff is how they're still trying to show off how it's different, uh, how cool it is. We're not, you know, kind of tired of Batplane stuff because we've seen it all the time. But there's so much emphasis on sound design. There's no music. And the way that the Batplane is featured is it kind of roars and screeches almost like a monster uh, through the skies. And I, I think that it's so cool. Uh, I love how they I love the effect. Yeah, I noticed the the lack of music in that sequence too, which was interesting because you know this the whole show lean, leaning into a lot a lot of the older tropes and trappings of noir and kind of the the cinematic work that they were doing. It, it has wall to wall score a lot of the time, especially during during action sequences, and the fact that they were willing to drop that out and lean into the sound design of the bat plane i thought was really cool it reminded me in terms of how they were using the sound and kind of the rhythm of the edits a lot actually of the the crop duster scene in north by northwest which uh, i revisited a couple of weeks ago just the idea that this little guy is being terrorized by this gigantic plane um it was it was pretty cool I know that they were pretty big Hitchcock nuts mm -hmm. over at uh, Batman, the animated series. I feel like a lot of the people I talked to always cited Hitchcock books you read, you know, the, I mean, he, he's, his movies have such a specific uh, boarding to them. And a lot of the, the tropes that are being emulated here come from his films as well. And the totally. suspense and the way that suspense is built visually. Uh, we do get one of the more insane sequences with the bat plane, which is it, those two little prongs on the front feel like they're made to hook into the car. They smash into it. And then he 
flies the car up into the sky and seems to kind of like torture him a little bit. And then the grabber claw comes out, which feels like it's only made for the toy. I had the toy. It had that claw. I don't know if it's ever used again in the series, uh, but it rips the door off. And then it does this thing where, like, as it's pulling him out, it's pushing the car off at the same time. It's it's a really cool sequence, even if he's just dropping a car somewhere in uh, Gotham without thinking too much about it. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that, and I did notice that he dropped it over over water, which was thoughtful of him. But uh, I guess I feel like we always see it's like, well, at least it's over water. But uh, I mean, Gotham's polluted as hell. The Joker had a trash barge that was just polluting it, you know, probably months ago. It, it, it doesn't need more cars being sunk into it, Batman. <laughs> yeah, and you have to think that if Batman has this claw on the Batwing, this is a maneuver he's probably performed dozens of times. Who knows how many gangster cars are littering the uh, the seafloor uh, of Gotham. Gangster Car Island has been built out of cars <laughs> that have been dropped in the same spot over and over by Batman interrogating people, and it's just slowly, slowly amassing out of the water. <laughs> yeah, my favorite part of that sequence... Because he starts interrogating Bell via uh, via speaker while he's dangling him, and Bell gets so freaked out that he passes out, and Batman kind of looks bemused and goes, "He fainted," and I'm like, "You think <laughs> you're flying loop to loops with this guy hanging from his wrist?" Uh, I mean, yeah, and also, how the hell are you hearing him? <laughs> <laughs> you got this screaming bat plane. There's wind rushing by. Oh, the, the grabber claw has a little microphone on it. Uh, there we go. Justifications. Yeah. Uh, he also says, listen up, scumwad, which uh, yeah. is a, he says like a lot of scumwad scum. Like he he feels a little bit more angry and intense than later Batman. I, I think early stuff, he's just more violent. And maybe it's because Bruce Wayne's name is on the line, but he is really, <laughs> he's, he's much more aggressive in these episodes. Yeah, I feel like the only times I've seen him get this aggressive in other episodes has been when it's a personal attack or when like <laughs> yeah. someone in, in his immediate circle of friends is, is on the line. Either Tim Drake is being turned into a Joker by the Joker uh, and, you know, shocked into submission, or Bell, the henchman of Roland Daggett, won't give him information. Yeah. <laughs> Those are two equally emotionally trying moments for Bruce Wayne. But then he makes the choice to visit Lucius in the hospital as Bruce Wayne knowing full well it's probably going to traumatize the poor guy. I so. guess he wanted information, but it was so weird yeah. that he was like, let me sneak in in the middle of the night and be like, <laughs> no, Lucius, I'd never hurt you. And he's like, no, 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 no. Um, this is after we drop Bell off in a pool, uh, you know, after the police copters show up and order him to remand the prisoner to police custody. Yeah, I do like, uh, and I feel like they leaned into it more in the, in the first season, uh, just the idea of Batman as a vigilante and his tenuous relationship with the police. I feel like as Gordon became more of a character and and he and Batman developed their, their friendship and rapport that we all know so well, a lot of the Batman hatred got pushed onto Bullock as the antagonist. But in the first season, I feel like there's a lot of uh, just kind of general police uh, not being down with what he's doing and how he's doing it. 
Yeah, and I mean, the first season was like the first 60-something episodes, so I wonder if it's like production order-wise. Mm. Even if this maybe showed up later, this maybe was animated earlier, written earlier. Uh, and, and yeah, I think the police in general are a neutral presence most of the time, uh, but often are seen as a threat to the right way of doing things, uh, maybe as much as, as the villains, which uh, is nice. That holds up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so does germs these days. But, uh. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> germs in the coronavirus times would not be doing well. Um, voiced by Ed Begley Jr. We mentioned that he was in the uh, episode, but uh, just to clarify, he is the voice of germs, and boy, oh, boy, what a voice it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we see Teddy finds Matt Hagen's car. He's been searching all night. What a guy. Seems like he has a chauffeur, too, for some reason, even though he's a stand-in. Interesting. Everybody's rich in Gotham. <laughs> and I got to say, love love Matt Hagen's car design with, like, the hot rod fuel injectors on the side. Yeah, of like, course he has that's, that. <laughs> that's totally the car that uh, that a successful asshole actor would drive in, uh, in Gotham. Uh, and then we get to part two. Feet of Clay, part two. Picks up pretty much right where things left off. The title card we should talk about for a sec. One of my faves. Yeah, the uh, the comedy and tragedy masks that are all cracking. and uh, It's a good card. Yeah. I, I miss uh, those. I still miss those on uh, the later stuff. I wish that they would have kept them for all the DC animated stuff. But yeah, was that a was that a budgetary decision, or that feels like that's such an iconic element of the show, and it was always kind of a bummer when they discontinued that. I wonder. I'm not sure. I imagine that when they moved to the new Batman Adventures, uh, and and probably Superman as well, because they probably wanted to shift things. I'm sure you get tired of doing things. I'm sure it took a bunch of time production wise, if they're like, we're having to make juggle two shows at once. One thing we can eliminate to streamline the process is probably these elaborately painted or, or made title cards. Mm-hmm. And they also eat up time. You still have the same amount of time per episode. So if you're lingering on a title card, that's time that is being taken away from the story. So I wonder how much of it is just that. Yeah, that could be, but I don't know. These are all guesses. Um, but uh, we pick up with Bruce. Oh, oh, and the cliffhanger is Bruce is going to jail. And then, you know, he he, he gets out of jail in the beginning, but uh, he's still yeah, a suspect. Brian, Brian Doyle Murray busts him out. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Again, standing there for, uh, you know, moral support for Kevin Conroy while he recorded. Um, okay. But I think it's such a cool, I mean, it's like, I, I, I always forget that this is also about Bruce Wayne potentially being pinned as a criminal. And it starts with his mug shots. And then we move into that Daggett scene uh, where there's that green glow. It looks kind of ace chemically. Um, and him walking over the catwalks. In addition to how cool the green stuff looks, the lighting in this scene is beautiful, too. Yeah, I love the way this scene looked. Um they're getting all the underlight from the chemicals and they've got these really harsh shadows on their faces. The the thing I liked most about it, and this is getting into real geeky territory. Oh, sorry. That's not what this podcast is about. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll show myself out then of my own home. Yeah, please do. Get the hell out <laughs> um, of your own home right now. <laughs> all right. I'm on it. I'm on it. Um, yeah, they're getting this really harsh 
underlight that's illuminating one side of their face. The other side of the face is going completely to black shadow. And what I love about it is you can see both eyes, but the shadowed eye is almost completely black. And I know that there was a lot of... I know there was a lot of talk in the production of Batman about what paint colors they could use because there was only a, you know, a, a certain amount of paints that you could use for the cells in order to keep costs to a certain level, and that's why Robin's gloves look weird sometimes because the highlight and shadow colors weren't quite right. But I love that they did the shadowed eye with like this almost black color. It feels really, feels really. I, I keep saying cinematic, but it does. It felt. True, true to true to how it would look photographically, kind of like you were saying about the the backlight in the trailer scene with uh, with Hagen. Um, the way the shadowing is done in this scene feels really like the best version of a cartoon translation of of a of a live action cinematic effect. Yeah. Yeah, um, and it's a beautiful scene. It's it's like be- it would be beautiful live action, and it's beautiful animated, and it's so cool to see that achieved so effortlessly when you're watching it and knowing how much effort that takes when you're boarding it, animating it, noting it. Yeah, I feel like any other show would have let that far eye either go totally black or would have just popped it white like the other one and done something more stylized. And the fact that they picked kind of the the realistic middle ground is cool. Yeah. Well, moving on, we check in with Hagen, who now realizes after he's been saved that he can change his his body like a reflex. Uh, it, It was how they kind of describe it a couple times in the episode. Um and, and it's sort of Teddy who points it out, but like Hagen's unconsciously doing it. And then he kind of starts practicing his powers and turning into different roles. And I love the visual manifestation of Hagen as an egotistical asshole who needs the limelight and is discounting the one person who's there for him. There's this beautiful section where Teddy is, is kind of this optimistic voice who pops up in the, like Hagen's looking in the mirror and there's this shot of like Teddy, like kind of, jumping up in front of him and we're sort of getting it from a pov angle from hagen as he looks in the mirror and hagen shoves him out of the way like there's no room for teddy this guy is a selfish asshole he can only think of himself whether or not he is thinking about his tragedy or his success and and i feel like there's so much good visual storytelling just in the boarding of this it's so good i think it's kevin altieri but i am not sure yeah, second episode was uh, directed by by Altieri. Um, gotcha. First one, Dick Seabast. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's written by Marv Wolfman or adapted. Yeah, it was written by. It's written by Wolfman and the teleplay was or yeah, it was written by Wolfman and somebody else who I'm blanking on. And Wolfman wrote the teleplay for the first episode, and the other writer did the second episode. Uh, I am right. clearly unprepared for this. <laughs> I like, mean, you know, I, I'm the, guessing. The other, the other guy. but uh... And if you don't know who Marv Wolfman is, he's, he's a very famous comic book writer. Uh, and so, he I mean, he created or co-created Cyborg, Raven, Starfire, Deathstroke, Tim Drake, uh, you know, 
Black Cat, Bullseye, the Omega Man, just to l- read some of his Wikipedia. So yeah, he's he's no slouch. Um, yeah, I love the image in that scene too when Hagen's face transforms into kind of the Errol Flynn-esque pirate-looking guy, and he's still got the giant clay face body and the normal head. It's just so weird. Let's talk about the Clayface design, because uh, we haven't really talked about it on the mm. show, and I feel like, I'll say this, I feel like you've been influenced by the Clayface design in, in, in some ways, just based on some of your recent work, uh, like some of the stuff that I've seen you make, I feel like you gravitate towards these, these Batman, the animated series-esque monsters that have uh, sympathy uh, or, you know, in their eyes. And, and I feel like Clayface is evocative in that way. Yeah, definitely. That that hit me watching this, and I don't know how much of this I should go into on here, but uh, I just did a, a short film called Steel Cut Oats that's a stop-motion live-action hybrid, <laughs> and it's about a giant sympathetic monster who's made out of oatmeal. And watching the Clayface episode, which I don't know that I'd revisited before diving full force into into my short film there are a lot of design similarities i mean they're both big sympathetic hulking beasts made out of a a malleable material and i i love clayface's design on the show i think for me as somebody who has worked in stop motion and sculpture primarily like anytime i see a 2d design that feels like it carries or has a lot of weight to it that really that that really uh stands out to me and it's something that i appreciate i think that's part of why i like uh mike mignola's stuff so much like i joke that none of his characters have shoulders and that creates sort of this very heavy weighted sloping effect where all the all the lines and angles point down (laughs) And I feel like the way Clayface is proportioned with the little stocky legs and the huge upper body and no neck, uh, he just, he feels heavy. And I mean, it's the way he's animated too, but I feel like that's so important for the character, both in terms of how he feels. He's a guy who's got the weight of the world on him and he's sad all the time, but also just in terms of Clayface as as a credible threat, that weight is important. It needs to feel like whatever he's made out of is heavy enough to clobber something or smash through a wall or, or whatever. Like when he turns into the, the Indiana Jones boulder later in the episode, Yeah, but uh, I thought of hook, but yeah. Yeah. It's an all around great design and yeah, the, the eyes are really expressive. Uh, even though they don't have, uh, they don't have pupils in them. No, but like, the way uh, that they mold and look, I mean, there's something really just really simple about the design but yeah i think that heaviness that weight really is something that sticks out to me i mean kudos to uh dc collectibles slash dc direct again is what they're called now uh, dc direct uh their action figure from the you know a few years ago of clayface some of those figures are hard to make stand without a action figure stand clayface is a huge hunk of plastic uh, with tiny legs still, and somehow he balances really well. It's, I think, one of the best figures in the line. 
Yeah, and it has the great, it has replacement heads. It has the great uh, screaming in anguish uh, Clayface yeah. head that you can pop on there. <laughs> I always keep the second head. Uh, I, I usually keep him screaming, but, you know, you, you got to sub it out every now and then. Uh, I have the other one usually sitting next to him, imagining he's kind of the puddle that sort of, you know, gooped away and down the sewer drain later in the episode. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think the other, the other thing design-wise that sparked for me with Clayface this time, especially in that scene, the way they stage a lot of his transformations and abilities. It also felt very Terminator 2 inspired with T-1000, the way he can move through air conditioning grates and sink into the floor and squash and stretch. Like all that animation is so good and had sort of that uh, that T-1000 threat. It's like, you never know, never know where this guy could be hiding. Uh, yeah, another early bit of horror that truly scared the shit out of me was that Terminator 2 scene where, you know, the T-1000s pretending to be the parents um, and mm-hmm. on the phone with John the, Connor. The milk scene, yeah. Yes, and he, but he's got like, it kind of pans over and you see his, his hand is turned into like a blade and is like through the body of, of them, right? I mean, is it piercing the milk? uh as well is that i remember it's it's through the it's through the mouth of the dad t yeah. is the mom and the milk i just remember is on the floor mixing with blood and, well we uh, sort of that's... get that build in this you know we get like that first it's just a stretchy arm at least when hagen is out there in front of other people uh it's <coughs> we do get the line i'm not an actor anymore i'm not, I'm even, not a man. even a man Starts crying, but we have to cut out on the crying to move on to, you know, the the interrogation of germs uh, in that hospital. Yeah, which has a specimen sample of seawater for some reason. Seawater for analysis, Harry, for analysis. It says so. That was a fun reveal when you think Batman is taunting him with a with a jar of scarlet fever. And uh, or maybe does he say crimson fever? I think they might uh crimson fever yeah maybe that was an s&p note i don't know if that's a real thing or me not, neither but, but well, uh, you get it and i, and I yeah. feel like that whole interrogation is again such a cool payoff for what we know about this germs character uh and the way that he like punches the wall and it kind of like knocking the jar, rattles yeah. and uh and and then just to bring hagen into that scene is such a cool dynamic i, I feel like that was a really efficient use of storytelling to kind of move things forward and get all those characters together yeah, and the fact that he shows up dressed as a as a guard or a cop, you know, we've we've already set up in this episode Batman's relationship to uh, other uniformed authority figures, and that that's the form that he takes to both sneak in and 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 to cross paths with Batman. I thought was interesting. Yeah, um, we get an arm stretch. Uh, he pulls off a piece of his face and like puts it on Germs's mouth, which I love. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, like all that body horror stuff. And we get our first rooftop fight uh, where Batman saves Germs from being thrown over the edge by Clayface. But we get all these really cool kind of Clayface transformations, uh, some of which are goofier than I think we see later, like those lobster the lobster claws. claws. But even the reveal of them, the way like the clay sort of like folds Splits, away and yeah. split, yeah, you got metal metal fingers, and uh, it's all really cool. Yeah, and I like that side of Clayface. Like it definitely is leaning into the goofier, but 
again, the idea that this guy was an actor. I think that there's a flamboyance to some of his, some of his hand weapons that yeah. are, are interesting and feel true to that. It's like, uh, there's, there's a little bit of that, uh, it's like the inverse of a, of a superhero origin scene. When you see like Peter Parker figuring out all the things he can do as Spider-Man, it's like Clayface figuring out all the weird things he can do with his own body. Yeah, it makes me think of Green Lantern, and at least in the Green Lantern mythos, where the idea is like, sure, everybody's able to use their ring based on willpower, but the the constructs that you use are kind of based on your own imagination. So, you know, John Stewart, Green Lantern, is kind of a no-nonsense dude, a military <coughs> dude, and so he used very uh, pragmatic shapes, mm-hmm. uh, whereas you get, you know, Kyle Rayner is, you know, was a cartoonist, and so he's got like a justification for like the more goofy, like boxing glove, you know, cartoony, whatever dump truck (laughs) scooper, uh, monsters or whatever. But, um, anyway, Clayface jumps off the roof, squishes on the ground. Uh, the animation's beautiful as he kind of like turns around and is like, eh, like he's discovering it. He gives a little, he kind of, kind of thing as he slips into the sewer. And Hagen berates Teddy once again. I don't need rest. I don't need food. And I don't need you. (laughs) Yeah, that to me was the the most viscerally sad moment in their relationship. When you see Teddy come with this beautiful looking tray with like a roasted chicken and potatoes. Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) I know. it, It looks like something he's been slaving over for hours to 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 make for for Hagen and he just swats it away and uh it's real real sad it's a little bit of a yeah mm. is that the last we get of Teddy in the in the episode I think it is yeah he leaves them all all alone in the house I mean it's last... weird that we don't have a follow-up at the end but maybe it's just for time but it's a bit of a bummer there was no kind of emotional follow-up oh, wait. to that no 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 you do you do see him at the end. You see him outside the hospital. Yes, he says he's like looking. He lo- he's looking towards where Hagen's room would be, and he thinks he's dead. And he's something like, "Yeah, I hope you're hope you're doing well wherever you are." Right. And, uh, but. I mean, I guess that's closure for the character for the series. But again, that's something fun to follow up with in another episode, where the person mm-hmm. who thinks you're dead, how how far are you willing to go for somebody who maybe you've identified as an abusive relationship uh and then years later they show up and they're like i'm back i wasn't dead and i need you to turn me into an oscar uh (laughs) yeah love to see teddy come back especially if he's if he's done some if he's done some personal journeying and healed from that and then it all comes back oh well (laughs) no no hopefully we imagine teddy had a happy ending he moved away to a city where it didn't have uh, any superheroes or villains. Yeah, I mean, a happy ending for anyone on this show, I think, is moving away from Gotham. But uh... <laughs> yeah. Uh, then we get this like tonight on Gotham Insider. You know, this this sort of TV interview with Daggett, um, and it's I I love how '80s looking the set is. It feels like a daytime talk show like a Sally Jesse Raphael or, or like a, you know, Geraldo mm-hmm. or whoever, uh, but like the blocky kind of coloring. And I love that it's just Daggett is able to 
hawk his shitty product to the public. Uh, it's such like a slam on the phar- pharmaceutical industry, which is so funny for a kid's show. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's a lot of <laughs> a lot of good satire in that scene. I don't know why it... Uh, I guess it's just the first thing I've seen on a cartoon in a while with a live a live broadcast gone wrong. It reminded me a little bit of the end of King of Comedy, too. I think just the... It did, me too. The, the, the tension of having an audience there and knowing that something is going to go wrong and watching a host or a guest try to keep it together. I love the animation on Daggett when he's getting confronted by the woman that turns out to be Clayface and he's like tugging at his collar and doing a horrible job of uh, trying to smooth talk his way out of, uh, out of what he's being accused of. Yeah. Even the angles start to become lower angles that are close ups mm-hmm. on him where it's just like, eh, like you, you feel his, his nervousness. Um, and we do get the woman uh, who Clayface is disguised as in the audience, which I think is a, a great bit and a, a great like slow build where you're like, something's weird. This person's way too angry to be a studio audience member. But I, th- this is the bit that you this and I for bit. years, yeah. <laughs> uh, we always imagine that she goes, excuse me, Daggett, uh, which, is <laughs> which not she never says and not what she sounds like at all. But uh... <laughs> It's not even a bit so much as us misremembering it and it becoming a bit. Excuse me, Daggett. <laughs> She's just like so, so outraged right off the bat. And again, it's that sort of uh, cringe, cringe at, live, uh, at a live TV moment that makes it work so well. You're watching this thing unravel. and uh, It's so good. The, the, and the then, stakes are great. And the animation again when she like explodes to reveal... Clayface underneath it's such a horrific moment and I just I love it oh yeah and and then we see the pandemonium the the fade to commercial break has this beautiful shot that like people running almost it's like a Godzilla movie shot or it's like a 50s monster movie shot where like somebody runs in the foreground and I think like one of the last shots is like a woman screaming in the foreground while there are other people running in opposite directions in the background um and yeah, people are scattering, and it's Batman versus Clayface, uh, who names himself in this scene. There is no Hagen, only me now, Clayface. Which, for all the buildup they did, you know, it was a different time. There's still no real reason for him to call himself Clayface, and I feel like we could have had any anything set up earlier the name of renew you could have been like it's it's like clayface or something uh or even somebody calling him that like the classic like hey look at get a load of clayface over here you know but he just calls himself that and i guess he is an actor so he he kind of is able to choose his own role it's his uh it's his stage name but yeah that jumped out to me too and it does feel like a little bit of a missed opportunity especially if they're satirizing uh, talk shows like that. I feel like there's opportunity for there to be a news report about it or something that something that brands him as Clayface and then he chooses to adopt that as his new his new role. Um, real quick to backtrack, I have to talk I have to mention my other favorite image in this episode because it's so silly. Uh, can we talk about? Batman in the TV control room uh, dressed, disguised as 
as a custodian with like a jumpsuit and hat over his over yes. his cowl. I want that action figure, DC Direct. Uh, yeah, he just I is like wheeling that. by, but he's got the cowl on. It's very clearly Batman, <laughs> yes. but he's got like a, a, barely an out a disguise. Well, just he could have so easily dropped the cowl. It's so much more conspicuous to to be. Well, he is wanted billionaire with... Bruce Wayne. That's true, but maybe, you know, it could be an opportunity for Matches Malone to get a, a, a new career as a, as a TV custodian, or, yeah. I don't know, I just, it's a very, it's a very funny image, and I would love a toy of that. Yeah, um, I mean, I'd love a toy of any of these guys. Listening. They're, they're making comic book characters in the animated style now, but I hope that paves the way for some of these weird, obscure, you know, Condiment Kings, Maxi Zeus's, Red Claws, Janitor Batman, Janitor Batman. <laughs> Francine Langstrom, Police Blimp, you know, uh, I could go on and on. Teddy. <laughs> Clayface as the woman on the talk show. God, I would be so excited about that. So for some reason has a speech bubble that says, excuse me, Daggett, even though it's never been said. <laughs> like those old uh, Simpsons, Simpsons toys, toys from Mattel that had the speech bubbles that stuck in the top of their heads. Yeah. Like that. Before it was a merchandising behemoth, it had yeah. that. You know, the uh, but, speech bubbles had little cardboard inserts with different quotes and then some that you could write your own in. That's so cool. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, moving on, we see uh, Clayface turn into a big big ball, Indiana Jones boulder, or whatever the kid who can tuck and roll and hook, however you want to imagine him. He's getting out of there by smashing through a wall as a ball. He's a big wrecking ball. And um, Batman chases him through, and we have like – that really cool, like, giant hand, like, flies at Batman and pins him against the wall that you were talking about. And then Batman pushes the hand forward, smashes Clayface into the TV control room, and knocks off, lops off both of his arms on the side in the process. So he's just this armless version of him with the remainder of the hand coming out of his chest. And, yeah, it is a very, like, cronenberg kind of, like lightly evocative of video drum <laughs> kind of yeah. moment yeah it's so cool i uh and again talking about snp i have a feeling it was probably a similar thing with clayface as it is with robots on this show that you can kind of do whatever you want to him they lop off limbs going back to the shot where he jumps off the building to escape batman tries to grapple hook him and the rope just slices through him like wire through a block of clay uh it's it's grotesque and really cool yeah i love it and then we get this finale which i think is one of the best finales of any batman episode it's one of the best animated things in the entire series it's something that i think has started to go around at least when i have been working on infinity train people who maybe haven't seen batman have brought this clip to me just because I think this clip isolated is now floating around of, of kind of Hagen's freak out transformation. Oh, it's so uh, good. It's insane. It's boarded well. It's animated perfectly. And, and I have to mention scoring it, uh, the Clayface theme song that's playing throughout that whole transformation sequence at the end i think it might be my favorite villain theme song there's something 
so sad about it and i think it's it's one of my favorite pieces of music on the show like it feels it feels sad and sinister and there's also something about it that evokes at least for me kind of the golden age of of films that you feel like hagen as an actor was a part of like it feels like something that would have been in an errol flynn movie or or a or a gangster a warner brothers gangster from the for, uh, movie from the 40s it's uh it's very human you know, it is and when that comes in underscoring the crazy animated shot of him morphing between all his past characters it's uh grotesque and poignant and <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, you asked me why I key into this episode. I think that's it's the crossover of grotesque and poignance that I feel like uh, it does so well, and that's something that I, I I try I aspire to do in a lot of my work, and just really uh, emotionally resonates for me. Yeah, I mean, I can see it in your work. I can see it in the stuff that we love to collaborate on. I, mm-hmm. I'm drawn to it. I'm drawn to using genre to kind of be a stand-in for you know evoking a feeling that you might not be um uh, aware of necessarily in your life but that you can connect to uh, you know through something like this I, I think that's it's really beautiful and i hadn't thought about the music in that way because i love mr freeze's theme i love two faces but two faces has this kind of eerie unsettling like there's something bubbling underneath and it's monstrous uh, but there's not as much sadness. And Mr. Freeze is almost like this ethereal, twinkly, like it is the snow globe. It's contained. And it works for both characters. But Hagen's, I mean, even the music, it's just its just a downfall. It's just a spiral. <laughs> it's, it's, like there's, it's just something that starts high and is always going to go down. And that's kind of uh, emotionally where he's always at. It's so sad. Yeah, that's a great... It's a great observation. I feel like all the other villain scores have something sinister bubbling underneath. Clayface's score—it's almost like funerary. It feels like it feels yeah. like the tra—it feels like the tragedy has already happened. And pity. You have pity. Like yeah. that's what it's—it's it's kind yeah. of exemplifying this like soft pity for the character, which is like, yeah, he's this you know shithead, he's this abuser, um, but you can sort of feel for him because you can feel his humanity which is i feel like something it's a weird tight rope to walk and make you feel uh-huh. um because you know we obviously anybody who's been in that sort of situation whatever it is i'm sure has complicated feelings about certain people uh like that and i feel like for the music to evoke that it's uh it's really good <laughs> i mean Shirley walker and and i'm not sure who specifically worked on this if there were other folks who were helping compose but um she She's incredible. Yeah. She's she's a lost talent. I, I really wish we got to see and hear what else she was able to do. Unfortunately, she's no longer with us. So the episode wraps up um, with, you know, Clayface assumed dead um, and kind of him being like, I would have killed to have like a death scene like this, uh, which is such a cool, funny thing, because also that is him delivering his death scene. He did get that death scene, and he does get to live on, so it's kind of like a... He does succeed in a weird way. He, he gets a glimmer of success. Yeah, I always forget that there's that little twist at the end. I mean, obviously I knew that they didn't kill off Clayface and that he showed up in other episodes, but I think... I mean, like you were saying, the the music in that scene... And the animation and the emotional core of it, all of it feels so 
realized and so true to the world of the episode that that little rug getting pulled out from under you at the end, that the whole thing was maybe a full-on performance on Clayface's part is like such a such a little surprise and a little little gut punch of an ending. Yeah. Uh, and we get him cackling, well, this woman cackling for a really long time, and then her eyes turn yellow, and then it kind of morphs into Ron Perlman's kind of Matt Hagen cackle as it fades out, and it's like, you know, just it, the monster lives. Like, this is a horror episode, first and foremost, and like mm-hmm. most horror franchises, there's that moment where the hand, you know, reaches out from under the grave, or, you know, it turns out Jason or Freddy is going to come back. Uh, so it feels... It feels thematically appropriate for what it's sort of uh, what genre it's sort of living in. Yeah, definitely. It's a cool, cool way to end it. Well, speaking of endings, uh, we've reached the end of the podcast. Uh, I, I wish we could talk forever, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we can't, and that's how podcasts work. Uh, since this is a fundraiser, I wanted to check in with you. You had a an organization that you wanted to support and that's what I will be supporting for this episode and all week like all the other episodes I'll be matching a certain amount and uh, yeah I wanted you to share a little bit about why you chose this organization that's so cool that that you're doing this and I'm excited to be a part of it Um, the organization that I picked is called the equal justice initiative Uh, And it was founded by uh, this guy, Brian Stevenson, who's a public interest lawyer. And basically, they're an organization that is committed to ending mass incarceration and excessive punishment in the United States and to challenge uh, racial and economic injustice. You know, I feel like uh, it's just it's just a good cause to support. I feel like there's. There's, there's so many people uh, that are unjustly imprisoned or imprisoned for terms that are insanely uh, elongated and out of scope relative to, to crimes. And, you know, this is something that extremely disproportionately uh affects the black community and it it's just it it looks like a great organization and uh i'd like to support it yeah well spoken i would like to support it too i hope listeners will support it um it's our our job to step up for our fellow human beings and especially the black community right now uh in whatever ways we can and so you know that's what that's what this podcast is trying to do, even though we talk about Batman. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, there's there's real shit going on, too. So uh, thanks for bringing that organization to the pod. Thanks for talking about Clayface. I'm glad we finally got to do that. Uh, the Thank weirdest you. shift yeah. in, in conversation. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it's... You know, I, it's always it's always good to talk Batman with you publicly. <laughs> As well you, as you, privately you too, all man. the time. Yeah, any any time. I'm always always down to talk about Batman. Thanks for having me on. And you know, Clayface is one of my one of my favorite episodes, if not my favorite episode. So it's cool and exciting to to finally chat about it in uh, in an official capacity. Yeah. And uh, where can people find you? And is there anything you want to promote? Uh, 
People can find me uh, on my website, uh, harrychaskin.com. You're also on Instagram, uh, and you post quite often, or at least fairly often, with a lot of uh, the art that you make, a lot of the stop-motion projects and, and kind of process stuff, as well as you know drawings. You're, you're pretty active on there, too. Yeah, at hchaskin is my, uh, my Instagram handle. Thank you for promoting me better than uh, I can promote myself. But yeah, I've got... Uh, a new short that I'm going to be releasing in the next couple of weeks that I actually made during the, the Safer at Home orders here in, uh, in California. And it was, you know, done entirely out of my garage with me and a bunch of duct tape and cardboard. Uh, so I'm excited about that. I'm also over the next week... I have to figure out where I'm... This is a little premature. I have to figure out where I'm going to be... Uh, putting the stuff up for sale, but I'm going to be selling and or auctioning uh, a bunch of original sculptures uh, to also raise money for uh, the Equal Justice Initiative and Black Lives Matter. Um, and that should be up in the next week. You can find details about that on my Instagram. So yeah, keep an eye out for that. Awesome. Yeah, I can attest that they're really cool sculptures. I've seen a preview of them uh harry doesn't sell his stuff a lot so i'd say jump on that follow him and 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 jump on it because you're not only supporting a good cause but you're also getting a cool little thing to keep that uh you know you may it'll be one of a kind so thanks again man this has been a true treat uh, and i'll see you later yeah thank you have a good one And that was Harry Chaskin. Check out his work at hchaskin on Instagram and at harrychaskin.com to see a preview of Steel Cut Oats, a stop-mo movie with lots of animated series influence, along with his new short. Thank you for listening, and once again, please join me in raising money for Black Lives Matter, the Equal Justice Initiative, and more during this fundraiser by visiting btaspodcast.com slash donate. Remember, up to the first $200 for each organization will be tripled if you donate now. And if you hear this down the line, please visit the show notes for a link to donate to the organizations directly. Batman the Animated Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Justin Michael. Tom Smith created the show logo, and Casey Trela helped produce the theme song. Harry Chaskin is the booming voice of this podcast and today's wonderful guest. Thanks for doing it, buddy. Lastly, I want to thank This American Life producer Tori Malatia for storming my home to question me, even if he used the wrong name and it was wildly confusing. I'd like to ask Mr. Daggett about the rumors I've heard. I hear he's selling Renew You through direct marketing because stores won't carry it due to its harmful side effects. Well, that's uh, uh, absolutely untrue. Uh, What about the addictive properties of Renew You, Mr. Daggett? How once you're hooked on it, you can't stop using it without horrible pain. No, I mean, that's just not so. Why don't you show them what an overdose can do, Daggett? Why don't you you tell them about me? All right, guys, see you tomorrow. Same Batman animated time, same Batman animated channel. Bye-bye.